Good morning. You guys would open in your word this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been in 1 Corinthians long enough to where your Bibles will flop open to those pages. However, if you use an electronic device, it doesn't flop open, does it? Just another reason not to use an electronic device. So many reasons. Uh, What a... Just a joy from my perspective to, to get to share God's word with you each week. You know, when you walk in here on Sunday mornings and you're greeted by people who are excited about the word because they've gone on the app and they've gotten advance notice and they've already looked through the notes and they already, like they've already preached the message to themselves and they're just very excited about now hearing it again uh, preached. That's eagerness and, and that is what you guys are like. You are a pleasure to present God's word to and what a great blessing it is to us, all of us who get to share with you guys each week. Well, um, well th- this is a, this is, I told somebody this week, I had asked the other pastors, there were a few verses coming up in 1 Corinthians and I needed the guys to fill the pulpit a few weeks back, but I asked them, please don't touch these passages so you can preach around them, but you can't preach them because I just felt a burden for them. And this morning is one of those passages that I've felt a burden for. And I don't want to take too much time to introduce it. I, I just, I just am aware that you could be here this morning and your life just feels out of sorts in a variety of categories maybe just re- relationally you could feel conflicted and upside down and things aren't going right you could be here having gone through another round of of fighting with something that you've been fighting with for as far back as you can remember things that you struggle with you just can't seem to get the upper hand on them they live getting the upper hand on you or maybe just here this morning and just life feels like a very unjoyous, unhappy experience. Well, so more than just identifying that that's the condition, this morning I think is extremely helpful from Paul. Because as he communicates to the Corinthians, he's going to sort of take apart the anatomy of life. He's going to explain to us why life is the way it is. And so here's what's been happening. And both of these things are very biblical. Paul's been traveling through the Corinthian experience. He's been visiting with people who are just like us. And he's been saying, hey, you got this going on. And you got that going on. And you got this situation. And you've mishandled that. And you've handled this. And, and that needs to change. And you're having problems over here. He, he's talked to them a lot about what is happening among them. And today he's going to shift the emphasis a little bit. And listen, that's not wrong. So don't be one of those people who believes that, well, you know, if you're, if you're grace-oriented or we preach the gospel, we don't ever talk about what we're doing. Well, of course we talk about what we're doing. Because I'm like you, I walk in here and my life stinks in some ways because of what I'm doing. And so don't anybody just, you know, feel like you can't face what you're doing because there's this doctrine of grace out there. Well, The doctrine of grace is what lets you face what you're doing. It gives you the courage and the freedom to stare yourself right in the face and say, hey, you know, I just ain't all that. I got issues. But Paul's going to go from what's going on to why is that going on? 
And, and I, I will say this, if you had to put up for a vote, at least my own experience, what's a better question? What's going on or why is that going on? Yeah, the why question is a little more helpful. Uh, what just tells you, you kind of, yeah, thanks a lot, I already knew that. But why? Why are you doing that? That's an important thing to discover, right? And Paul's going to help us today. So open the 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read about half of the chapter maybe together. Verse 1. <clears throat> For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Like if you don't know what this is, this is Paul describing the ancestry of believers. People who were following God years ago, 1,500 years earlier, this is what was happening with them. They were all baptized into Moses, right? This is the Exodus event, into the sea and the cloud. They all ate the same spiritual food, all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Oh, Lord, thank you for moments where you impart insights into our lives. Lord, Lord, we don't understand our own lives, the reasons behind our own lives, why the landscape of our life is filled with stuff that's broken and painful. Lord, we perhaps are here this morning, can't figure out why we're so unhappy. But Lord, these things are written down for us, for our instruction, to give us insights in categories that matter. And so Lord, would you do that for us this morning? Give us insights in the places that matter to you and to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go back here to the beginning of this chapter. Five verses Paul's going to take to bring us back into the lives of the Israelites. And uh, quite a resume. Quite a resume of experience, right? All this resume is going to set up that one word, nevertheless. Paul's trying to make a point here. That's going to lead to a nevertheless moment in spite of those things, regardless of all that. Well, you know, what was all that? I think I wrote this out in your outline here. 
Their life, listen, it had spiritual content and the actual work of God was touching them. These were not people who had no idea who God was, who barely got around God, who didn't experience anything from God. No, that's not their condition. Christ really was in their midst. Right? There was this rock, there were these miracles that followed them around. And the water that flowed miraculously in desert places where there was no water. And Paul highlights that rock was Christ. Christ dwelled with God's people in the desert. They saw miracles. They saw the power of God at a level that very few in all of scripture will ever see. Maybe rivaled only by Jesus' ministry itself when he comes in the form of a man. Right, you guys remember these stories, right? You, you know, Peter said, you saw the Ten Commandments. Those incredibly powerful acts of God to overcome the forces of Pharaoh and Egypt and plagues that were visited and miraculous provision. Listen, I mean, there is miracle after miracle here. They're going to wander off into the wilderness. Can you imagine you're going to lead a couple of million people out into the wilderness? Listen, they're not going to pull the, the bus over and pull up into the uh, McDonald's and feed them. Everything about their existence had power and miracle attached to it. They had one of the most favored and effective spiritual leaders in all the Bible. Right? If you, you, know, you picture starting five of guys in the Bible you want on your leadership team, Moses probably makes it, right? I mean, he makes it for God. And then you have this shattering reality. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, in spite of all that favor, these human beings were capable of being motivated by the wrong things, pursuing the wrong ends, making the wrong choices, ending up in the worst place. Nevertheless, so, so listen, it's a little naive if you and I draw up these ideas that, you know, if we could just get life to have this in it and that in it and this in it. If I could just be around the ideal people, goodness, if, if it wasn't Keith this morning, if it was Moses speaking this morning, that'd be helpful. It probably would be helpful, quite honestly. <clears throat> if I wasn't married to this person, if I didn't have that boss, you know, if my covenant group wasn't such a bunch of slackers, and they prayed and there was power, and there was power when we gathered together, the power of God was present. Hey, listen. We're for all that. We want the, um, the ultimate and leaders to be in our lives. We're for that. We, we want our spouses to be all that God's called us to be. We, we're for that. We, we want the power of God in our midst. We're for that. But this verse is sobering. It says, you know what? You could have all that, but there's something else going on inside of you that can make all that a big nevertheless. In spite of all that, what you bring to the party could kill all that. How's that for joyful news, huh? So why is Paul picking up that story, a story that's 1,500 years old at this point when he shares it with the Corinthians? Well, the passage says in the beginning of the chapter, there, I don't want you to be unaware, right? This is, this is not a category for ignorance. I'm about to say something to you that you can't afford to be stupid in. That's what Paul starts this section off saying. And he says, these things were provided for them as an example. Right, so if you want to figure out the human life experience here, make sure you factor this in as an example when you go to figure out why is life the way it is? 
Well, here's an example of why. And, and in verse 11, he says, these things are there for our instruction. This story needs to teach us something. And you know what it doesn't need to just do? It doesn't need to teach us to look back at those idiot Israelites and say, what the heck was wrong with them, huh? Because Paul is serving this up to the Corinthians because they seem to have the same problem. And God has written it down because we seem to have the same problem. So this is why this instruction is here in this passage. But what's about to happen now is Paul's going to go from what they did to why they did what they did. And this is the part that I I need help with. And I know you need help with it as well. I, I need help in seeing deep inside of me. You know what most of us are doing? Right, we get into a situation of, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on? What did you just do? And most of us explain what we're doing, unfortunately, uh, by some surface explanation. And usually it's, it's a blame-oriented explanation. What I just did was because you always blah, blah, blah. Or because the people around me. Or because my parents did. Or the people in my life did. Or because I'm, I'm hurt or I'm, I'm affected by. So I'm explaining everything at a surface level. And, and Paul's about to peel back the heart of the matter. And he's going to introduce us to why we actually do quite a bit of what we do. I won't say everything that we do. But I'll come close to saying that. Remember this is an example for us. This is an exploration of other human beings in order to make the point that we're kind of like them. We're about to get insights into our humanity. These are given as an example. And then he turns around in verse 6. These things took place as examples that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul is giving an example of desiring evil. Let me go back and explore This creature called the human being. And let me expose you to the idea that human beings desire evil. That's going to be a problem. Right? So this is is what we're about to learn about. But before I get into the passage, I'm already behind this topic. Right? I'm already too late for most of us to even address this issue. Because our culture has already been addressing this issue. It speaks about this same topic in a very different way than the Bible speaks about it. And unfortunately, most of us have already heard what the culture has said. And too many Christians are convinced that that just sounds right. So what I'm about to say is going to sound like, you know, you know when your dog hears something and goes like that? I'm about to share with you from God's word and and your inner impulse is going to be to go. Is that right? Uh, well, it's not the Bible that's the problem. It's what we believe that's the problem. How does, when you revisit the examples of Scripture, how does that inform your view of humanity? The stories that are told about the, the people in Scripture. You know, Adam and Eve. The decision that they make. The reasons that they make it. What happens to them in that moment? Does that inform your view of what you're made of and what other people are made of? When God decides that 
the depravity of man is so prolific that it has spread everywhere. There's not a human being exempt from it. And so utterly inside of every human heart is a heart bent on destruction. And so God responds to that by sending the flood and destroying everyone. Does that tell you anything about human nature? When you see the recovery after that and Noah's descendants and a part of them go off into Canaan and settle in the land of Canaan and then the Bible revisits them a few years later and describes what they're doing and says there's an abomination in the land of Canaan. These people who started all over again are are just as corrupt again. And they're committing abominations in the eyes of God in the land of Canaan that get described in scripture at some level. And I won't go into the details, but it's gory and grave. You know, Bible's not rated PG. And then if you even took the heroes along the way, you know, King David's a hero, isn't he? Isn't King David a hero? He's also an adulterer and a murderer. Even the people that would go, whoo, look at him. Got some serious issues going on inside of them. Then he has a son, Solomon, who's the wisest guy ever. And he corrupts the whole nation at the end of his life by giving in to impulses that were inside of him and serving something that brought destruction on others. And you fast forward all the way to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are Christians. The Corinthians have God at work in their midst. Nevertheless, something else is at work in these guys. They've got more trouble than we know how to shake a stick at. And so does this inform you? When you go to figure out what are human beings made of? What am I made of? Does this inform you at all? Or, Or is Oprah informing you? Right, your little box there has an outline or a little... Point, I'm just going to fly through this, but I just want to, I want to put it into your thinking as when you interact with the culture, I hope the culture bounces off of this all the time because the culture doesn't sound this way, right? So I'm going to read through it, this, just get through it quickly. Warning, our times don't teach the same lesson and don't feature the same instruction as what we're about to get right here. What's instructing the philosophy of our age is not self-corruption. Because that's the nevertheless point of what Paul's about to say. Nevertheless. God did all kinds of things. Favorable circumstances came to them. The power of God came. There were promises. Nevertheless, self-corruption in their lives spoiled it. And that's the story that leads all the way to the Corinthians. That's not the story you're going to hear in our culture. Instead, you're going to hear self-esteem. Today, we are taught the inherent goodness of all people and that our greatest need is to learn to love ourselves, to esteem ourselves, to educate ourselves, and to look within. This is where your head's about to start turning on me. If If you're below the age of 40... You don't even know where this came from. It's always been this way. If you're above the age of 50, you watch this come on the scene. So you watched ideas about people trying to figure out how to motivate people. How do you motivate people to do good things and right things, etc., etc. And somewhere along the line, 
They developed this idea, and this is, this is what you do when you are godless in your thinking. You have subtracted God from the equation. So if man is going to do good things for good reasons, where is he going to look for that? Within himself. And so I've got to create a script that teaches you to do that. And let me just say this as, a, as the only balancing thing I'm going to say here. <laughs> um... This is not an invitation for every Christian to be as negative as they possibly can about everything that human beings do. This is not an invitation for Christians to never celebrate human art, human excellence, ingenuity, engineering, smarts. This is not what this is about. So you you shouldn't take this doctrine and walk away from it and never feel like you can appreciate anything, quote, good in any person, or recognize any form of talent and good ability that God has given to you. That's not what this is. Do not do that with what I'm about to say. But what this does, when it, when it puts God in the wrong place, it marginalizes him, it puts him out of the picture in ways, and it tries to motivate you by trying to figure out, you've, you're special, You've got gifts and talents. Listen, our kids learn this from the moment they enter a public setting. To look to their own specialness. Can can I just tell you, you are installing something that's going to be a slave master in your children's lives. Because what you're teaching them is favor is coming to your life through other people because of your specialness. So you better get about being really special. You better work really, really hard at being really, really special because that's how the favor is going to come into your life. Do not do that to your children. I'm sure your children are special in all kinds of ways. I think my kids are as well. And there's all kinds of talents and smarts, etc., etc., that God has put in human beings. But the Bible never tells you to look to those things as though they will rescue you. They will define you. They will make you who you are. They will motivate you to be better in the future. That's never what the Bible teaches. So that idea is in our culture and it's contrary to how the Bible actually motivates us. Right Here, Here are your fatal flaws in this ultimate philosophy. I'll just fly through this. First, it teaches you self trust it ignores the inner corruption that the Bible clearly highlights. Right? So a couple of Bible verses there I put in your outline. You can go back and look some of these up. Although it's a sprinkling of a, of a never endless testimony of scripture. To only look inside and fall in love with what is good is to ignore the inner corruption that is inside of you as well. That nevertheless is there for a reason. Because nevertheless... What's inside of you is corrupt. Second, it teaches you to look inward. While the scriptures teach us of our deficiency as fallen beings who are separated from the life and the giver of life. Who is God himself. Do you understand the, whole, the, the point of this whole Bible is to get you to look outside of yourself to God. It's try, it comes, the first thing it says to you is you're dead. That's the first thing it says to you. It says you're dead. It doesn't say you're full of resources. It doesn't say, oh, you had just had a bad day. Tomorrow, 
because of your goodness, it'll all be better. You'll be better. You'll make it better. It never says that. It says you are broken, deficient, corrupted, and dead. And your great hope lies in you looking away from yourself to God. That's the whole message of the Bible. If you think the Bible sends you anywhere else, I promise you haven't really read much of the Bible. And you've listened to bad preachers who have sent you there. The Bible knows my desperation is a desperate need for God. Not for the best version of me, but for God. Lastly, inherent goodness provides a fundamentally different approach to life. An approach that seeks to empower and give opportunity to that goodness. Does that sound familiar? Do you hear those words in your culture? Empowerment words? Give opportunity words? This is why our culture today features education. Empowering personal potential. Downplaying negative input. You just need to get the barriers out of the way of people. Take them off the leash. Let them them loose, man. Well, if you believe that there is just good human potential trapped inside these bodies, well, then you just need to get rid of all the negative people that are messing that up. Take people off the leash. Listen, this started to get traction in, in our modern day, the 60s, when people were raising their children. And the idea of correcting them, spanking them, altering their self-expression fell into a bad light. I I remember my dad interacting with this when I was a kid and explaining because he had some relatives that were older and their family and our family was much older than I was. So I'm coming up in this and I'm watching the dysfunction in these families. Self-destruction. Cousins who destroy their own lives. And the way that they were raised was to empower their self-expression. Don't restrict it. Don't do that to a child. Don't restrict. I mean, isn't that what you hear? See, when you believe that all that's inside is something that's good, then who are you to restrain that? What's wrong with you for restraining that? That's wrong. Everybody turn your head on me. This sounds really weird, Keith. But what if what the Bible says is nevertheless... There's stuff inside of you that if you take it off the leash, it will eat you and everything around you for lunch. What if that's what the Bible says? You sure you want to empower everybody? This is why our culture sounds like education is the answer to everything. You guys heard that enough yet? The reason why people suffer, the reason why there's pain, the reason why stuff goes wrong in this world is people just aren't educated enough. Well, what exactly are you educating? Listen, I'm not against education, but I'm just against the philosophy that makes you say it that way. You think that there's, there's human goodness that just needs to be educated. If, if human goodness could just get a degree in something, it would be incredible. Is that how it really works? Or are human beings made of something a little bit different? All right, here's my last editorial comment there written in your outline. What happens, because this is a little bit irritating, what happens when Christians inhale too much cultural air? Well, we want to hear things that tickle our ears of self-appreciation, self-empowerment. 
And there are many churches that feature this and minimize the cross and our need for the Spirit's empowerment. And they teach you to be hostile towards all the naysayers that sound like me. All those negative people out there. You need to just rid your life of all the people who aren't Pollyanna like you. Running around saying, well, you just need to put on a good face and, you know, the best you and and be all that. It's interesting how you get directed to be hostile toward that. But when the Bible directs your hostility, it's toward yourself. There's a warfare between the flesh and the spirit in the Bible. If you want to pick your weapons up, please aim them at yourself before you aim them at anybody else. Because the greatest enemy of your life is within you. It's not everybody else around you. But if I'm potentially, you know, pretty much the good guy in the equation, then why wouldn't I shoot the rest of you? Because what's messing my life up is you won't get it together. But that's not where the Bible starts. That big nevertheless is a nevertheless pointing to me. That's why he can say, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. Paul, why do we do what we do? Because we're idolaters. There is an issue of idolatry in the human heart. That's the heart of the matter. Why did I just do what I just did? Well, if I'm innocent, you're to blame. This is where the blame game has gone prolific. Everybody else is to blame, isn't it? Because I'm not going where this verse is going. But where does the Bible take us in this moment? N.T. Wright in his commentary says, The key thing is the mention of idolatry in verse 7. This is the first problem he names that needs watching out for. Everything else hinges on this. Everything else? Probably so. Everything else hinges on this. Anybody here thinking that it's an accident or just a random chance event that God put the first commandment as the first commandment? Was God, I mean, just, I don't know, that's the first thing that came to mind, you know. The 10 could have been first. It's just a ramble. I just shuffled some cards and threw them out and this is the order they came out in. Or is this the most critical thing about the human existence to get right? I am Yahweh. Your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Do you think the Bible puts that first for any other reason besides it's of first importance to us to make sure you get that right? Because if you don't, you'll get everything else wrong. And why would the Bible go out of its way to highlight that in multiple places? Because there is an inner corruption in me that was the basis of Adam and Eve's sin. They wanted to be God. Do you remember the deal? Eat the tree. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Ah. That's still traveling through the veins of every human being. 
There is an idolatrous bent in us, and that's why Paul can land here in this moment. Richard Keyes, in his book on idolatry, says, Overlooking idolatry makes us blind toward our own problems. Naivete about idolatry in Christian experience is like the price paid by the city of Troy as its people happily open their city gates to welcome the Trojan horse filled with enemy soldiers. Idolatry can corrupt and distort any aspect of Christian thought and life. Any aspect. Transforming it into something that is ruinous and death-dealing. That's pretty serious. I can, with my own heart, take something good and turn it into something that serves me at the expense of the glory of God and you. And that's with me right now. Standing here before you. It's pulsing through my veins. It came into the building with you. It was with you when you were driving your car here this morning. We won't elaborate on what might have happened. Lise Fitzpatrick says, Idolatry lies at the heart of every besetting sin that we struggle with. It provides that answer. Why? Why after five years, after ten years, why in my whole life, why is this still going on? The answer lies in the category of idolatry. Idolatry takes root so deep within the skin it may go unnoticed and unadjusted for much of life. We may not be asking these questions. We may just be acting out of the impulses of our idolatry. And we've gotten so familiar with that that we, we haven't gone back and traced, when did this desire get started in me? What, what's the starting point? of this? We just, we just, We're just doing life. And we don't even recognize what motivates us anymore. And you, you guys see that. And I'll call it a science fiction movie. It was a movie called Inception. It's a movie about dreams and how to stick ideas in people's heads while they're in a dream state. It was kind of a twist uh, idea movie. But at some point, the main character's wife, it gets revealed she's led this destructive life and she ended up committing suicide. And what gets revealed is that at some point in her past... The main character who had the power to get in people's dreams and and stick an idea there had done that to her and stuck an idea there and she didn't even know it was there. But she lived the rest of her life operating out of that own idea to the point that she took her own life. Idolatry gets down deep down inside of us in that way. It's that I could be sitting here this morning and I could make a list of Just what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, what I'm doing, what I'm not doing. I could do that, but I can't tell you why. And I'm here this morning to tell you the Bible's not okay with that. You know, that kindergarten version of Christianity where we're just so busy. The only thing that we know is just, yeah, correct me because I smoke or because I drink or because I do this or I say that in a foul word and I don't dress right. Correct me for that. I get that. That's Christianity, right? No. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Christianity. A passion for God that's unrivaled by anything else. That's Christianity. It's not just the rules. That you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this. It has to do with why do you do anything that you do. 
Why do you love the things that you love? Why are you really bothered about the things that you're really bothered about? All right, question. And I want to dig in this category a little bit. So I'm going to give us some help there. But here's a question. I think I'll put it in your outline. When life comes off the rails or is unsatisfying or frustrating... How many people will blame everyone or everything else except the idol in their own heart? If you do much counseling, which all the pastors here do counseling, we're grateful that we get to serve folks through helping sort through life with biblical truth. You'll be aware that it's a rare It's a rare event that when people are having conflicts and having problems that they come in and the first thing they want to tell you is about their idols. Almost never comes up. They've got a detailed list of everything that's wrong with the other person. And they've got fresh examples from the last two weeks. (laughs) But they got nothing on what's going on inside of them. Nothing. And this is why you don't like getting counsel sometimes. Because at some point, I'm just warning you, at some point, we're going to change the conversation. Yes, we are. <laughs> and, and we're going to turn into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and we're going to stop talking about what everybody else is doing and start fishing for the idol that's inside of you. Because that's the biggest factor. Can you remember this word? Nevertheless. Can you leave here today remembering that word? Nevertheless. And it goes like this. You come in for counsel. <clears throat> you list all the things about your life you don't like. And we probably wouldn't like them either. And we would turn to you and say, if we fixed all of those, nevertheless, you still have a problem. <laughs> it's the idol operating in your own heart that probably is making all of those issues weigh 10 times as much as they would weigh by themselves. It's not that those issues aren't real and they don't add something to life that's really hard, but the idol inside of you is a bigger factor about your unhappiness than what everybody else is doing around you. Nevertheless, right, the Israelites had issues It wasn't because God didn't show up in power. He didn't do miracles. He wasn't faithful. Didn't give them good leadership. Didn't provide for them. Didn't make promises to them. He did all those things. They had it ideal. They were being rescued out of a terrible situation. Nevertheless, they still spoiled the party. Because of those? No, because of what's inside of them. Here's a deeply insightful, long quote. Hang with me here. Tim Keller Excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, worth the read if you haven't ever read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, there are deep idols within the heart beneath the more concrete, visible surface idols that we serve. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives. So they become idolatrous, deep idols. Listen, this is helpful. Some people are strongly motivated by a desire for influence... And power, 
while others are more excited by approval and appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else, while still others want security, the control of their environment. People with a deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular in order to gain influence. You know some people like that? They'll run over you. They'll disregard you. They're on their way somewhere. They're all about business. They want power. And they don't care a whole lot whether you like them. I lost myself. What word am I on? People? Thank you. People with a deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular in order to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. It will gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Right? There's all kinds of terms that describe this codependency. Don't be a doormat. Right? I mean, why do you have to give people counsel like that? Because they'll give up power over everything just to get people to be okay with them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control generates a different set of fears and a different set of hopes. Oh, are, am I in touch with the fears and ambitions or hopes that live inside of me? Because they are the things most vulnerable to idols. Idols live in the categories of fears and hopes. So if you haven't identified what your fears and hopes are, you probably are clueless about what idols might be inside of you. Keller goes on and says, surface idols are things such as money, spouse, children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We're often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and their life. Such people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money because it gives them so much power over others. Right. Do you understand that if you live in one of those categories and not the other one, that other person is a mystery to you? You don't get them at all? And you, and you could be married to them? Right, so you could be the person that's like, uh, until the bank account gets to this level, I am full of fear and trepidation. So money is all about security to me. And you're married to person, somebody's like, hey, as soon as the money comes in, I find something to do with it. Because I'm all into entertainment and fun and activity and, and maybe wearing it all so people can be impressed with me. And you're married to each other and you share the same checkbook, right? What fun! <laughs> so why are you having all these problems? Well, have you thought that both of you are idolatrous? You know who gets blamed for being the bigger idol in that factor? Come on. The spender. Yeah, he's the idle guy. The other person's responsible. No, the other person's terrified. Has a different kind of an idol operating inside of them and drives you nuts because they can't let anything out of their hands. The future. We don't have a future. You spent what on what? You know what? I mean, that's a failure to trust God too, isn't it? 
And so you, you, these are the things we need to dig around in a little bit. All right, so here, let me I put a little graphic up for you here. I went this week and had a stress test. Yeah, I did. On my way out of the office, I said, I don't know why I need this. I work with Pete Shefferstein. <laughs> Deal with stress all the time. But, you know, stress test, that EKG thing. Well, this is kind of like an IKG. It's an idolatry examination of the heart. All right, so and if we examine the idols, you know, the Corinthians had all this bad behavior, right? They had divisions and misplaced loyalties to one another. They had sexual immorality and pleasure pursuits taking place. They were indifferent about what was harming somebody else. They were so into their own world, serving their own ideas. They got mad and offended, so they'd sue each other and take each other to the court. All right, so that's all the, what you're doing on the outside, right? So I'm not sure, we've got a graphic up here. I'm not sure what your landscape looks like for your own idolatry. Maybe we don't have a graphic, but you got something in your notes there, I think. All right, so maybe in your life, you got, you got angry words happening, it's a regular routine. comes out a lot in your life. Maybe there's gossip going on in your world. Maybe you're obsessive about something. Right? Maybe there's just criticism, uncharitable judgments that take place towards other people. Right? Um, all those things can get greeted by a correction from Scripture because they're all identified as sins. So at one level, the Bible could come to you and say, hey, that right there, that's a sin. But if you don't take the next step and ask, yeah, and why am I doing that? All right, so angry words. Yeah, I know. I need to not say that. I need, I, I need to work on what I say. I, you know what I need to do? I need like a technique where I take a deep breath and I think before I speak. Yeah, that's what I need to do. Well, yes, you do need to do that. That's exactly true. But you know what would also help? If you just ask the next question, what are you so angry about? That's a little harder question because that's going to get into the idol issue of what's operating in my heart that causes these things to take place. What, you know, what do I get out of gossip? What, why, do you, why are you so free with information? What is that doing for you? Not just a matter of, you know, I know gossip is wrong. I shouldn't gossip. Yeah, that's right. Now, this is much deeper than that. It would be helpful for you to know why you're so attracted to gossip. Do you enjoy lowering other people? In the eyes of others, probably. And why do you enjoy that? Well, because it makes my sins less noticeable? Because it elevates me somehow? Oh, oh, okay. Idols are very unflattering, aren't they? It's very uncomfortable to get revealed to you how cheap I really am in my heart. The cheap things I'm after. And what motivates me. It's a little hard to face sometimes. But an idol deals with what I want, right? What do I want? Because when I sin against others, I want something for my idol at the expense of the glory of God and other people. Right? So that's what's happening. And so let me visit one aspect of that. We're going to take a moment to pray in just a little bit. All right, so look, you get to verse 8. And you get this quick rundown. But here's, here's what the life of idolatry looked like for the Israelites. Right? This, is a, this is the idol lifestyle. And he's just going to pick a few examples. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a helpful list. It says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8. We must not indulge 
in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day, right? So you go back to visit the way the Israelites gave themselves. I believe in this instance, it was to the Moabite women and they engaged in sexual immorality with these women and, and God responded to that wrong behavior. But, but Paul picks it up not as something that just needed to be corrected. He picks it up as an example of idolatry. They desired something. There was something that they were indulging. That's an informative word. Do you realize that there's something that lives on the inside of you that wants to be indulged? It's saying every day of your life, please take me off the leash. Please take me off the leash. Please let me have what I want. Every day of your life, it is in you with that agenda. So that word indulge means you turn around and feed that thing. And you give it what it wants. And it takes on activity and more activity and more activity. Verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Listen, idolatry is a violation of the first commandment. Christ has come to give us life and we look at the life that he gives and we go, not enough, not good enough, not what I asked for. That puts Christ to the test, doesn't it? The God who's come to give us life and that more abundantly and we turn to him and say, not good enough. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling. Grumbling's a problem? Oh, really? Anybody feeling a little guilty? Any complainers in the room? <laughs> I wrote your outline there. It says, when you're heart is knit to some other idol's agenda, it becomes very hard to be happy with God's agenda. That's what grumbling is. Grumbling is me surveying my life and going back to the creator and the sovereign of my life and complaining about what I'm seeing. Because it's not what I want or what my idol in me wants. My question is, are you a person who is prone to complaining or criticizing or anger or frustration? Are you considering that at a surface level or have you traced that to the heart of idolatry? What is it that your idol wants that you are in allegiance with that is producing your anger and complaining? I'm not getting what I want and I am teed off about it with God and anybody else who gets in the room with me. Is, is it because your circumstances are truly that bad? They might be bad. Or is it because you're not getting what you want? Because listen, quite honestly, I've listened to a lot of people's stories and I have my own. And there are some circumstances that I would say, whew, that's really, really bad circumstances. Really, really bad. But you know what? I find I'm capable of complaining about a lot lesser circumstances than the really, really bad ones. I can just take the routine daily ones and those can become the source of my 
complaining. And is it because this is really, really bad? This is really, really, really bad. Or is it just because I'm not getting what I want? And I feel like I should be getting what I want. David Jackman in his commentary says, Grumbling is always a species of idolatry. Grumbling is always a species of idolatry. It reveals a heart in rebellion against the way in which the sovereign God has ordered our circumstances, contradicting his providence and affirming, I know best. In fact, the grumbler's heart is set on his own will, not on God's. Moses' rebuke of Korah, which is what this is referring to, and his company indicates that their ambition for the priesthood lay beneath their grumbling. This is a very interesting moment here, right? There's a moment when Korah and a couple of other leaders have a moment where they're not happy with the way things are going. They don't like the circumstances. The circumstances are risky. They've been let out of some security that was back in Egypt and they're having to trust God on a daily basis and it makes them feel threatened. So in that fear, they begin to find fault with the things around them. And not only that, They don't like the way Moses and Aaron are presenting themselves. Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron. Enough of Moses and Aaron already. All of us belong to God. Who do they think they are? Anyway, you ever try to have a conversation with one of those guys? Oh, they're so busy. They're so important. Okay, this is the attitude that's growing in these guys. And so they begin to grumble and complain. That's what's in this verse. But it's interesting what was behind the grumbling. Number 16, verse 8. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that God, the God of Israel, has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? Right? The Levites had a special role. All the tribes. You're a Levite. You've You've got a special deal going on in your life. You're special. Do you see how being special doesn't cure you? You can tell your children they're special all they want. Nevertheless. <laughs> Is it too small a thing for you that God of, the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him? And all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Right, so what was going on in their hearts? They wanted something more than what they got. God had allotted to them a life. And it was a pretty special, unique setting for them. But it wasn't enough. They were jealous. They wanted what somebody else had. And that rose up in their heart in a way that began to be grumbling and complaining and finding fault. And and after that, I'm sure Moses and Aaron could do no right after that. They were in the, the eyes of criticism now. And all they could do was complain and complain and complain. Now, I guess if you're a counselor and you sit down with that, you can try and figure out, well, let me see. What are all the things that Moses and Aaron are doing wrong? Let's see if we can address this. Okay, listen, and we probably do some counseling that sounds like this, and, and we deal with the issue that, hey, you're having this conflict because 
you're misbehaving this way, and you're misbehaving this way, and so if we're going to get along, we're going to have to fix some of what you're doing. But Paul includes this example as an example of idolatry. They grumbled because they have idolatrous desires in their hearts. And even though they had a good thing going on, they wanted something more. Even though they were respected in the community, they wanted more respect. They wanted that guy's respect. They wanted a different world. There was jealousy in their hearts. Listen, if there's jealousy in you, it's screaming, hi, there's an idol nearby. Screaming that. I want what I want for my own reasons. And why does that guy get it? He's no better than, what? Look, look what he does. Did you know last week he did this and did that? And the guy never does this. Give me a break, please, big Moses and Aaron. And you know, maybe they had some, some real examples, right? Moses and Aaron, I, I, I dare say, didn't do everything right. Maybe there are things about their lives that you really could have picked on and said, that's ridiculous. I can't believe these guys. You know how long it took Moses to get back to me the other day? I mean, there's lots of reasons to be hacked off of these guys. You think he cares? He doesn't care. He doesn't. He doesn't. All right, then you can do this in, in your marriage. Right? You can find all kinds of fault. All kind, but have you stopped to think, what's really inside of me that's animating and making me behave the way I'm behaving? Is it really Moses and Aaron? Because according to both Paul and Moses in writing numbers, that wasn't the case. The case was the issue that was inside their hearts. Question. Do you ever check your own heart? When you're in the midst of criticizing or blaming other people in your life for your unhappiness. Do you ever check your own heart? When you're in the throes of blaming other people and circumstances for your own unhappiness. Is your husband or your wife really that bad a person? Or do you have other conflicting issues in your own heart? You wanted a different life. You had a fairy tale in mind. Life hadn't been a fairy tale. You thought life was going to feel different when you were 40 or when you were 50. Can, Can I just break some news to you? This is such a deception that the enemy uses in people's lives. If you had the ideal husband, the Israelites had the ideal God. If you had the best leadership on the planet, the Israelites had the best leadership on the planet. If you had miraculous favor showing up in your life to keep you from dire consequences, the Israelites had all that. Nevertheless, they were still unhappy. Isn't it just easier to blame your husband or your wife? To blame the people around you that just aren't exactly what you wished and hoped they would be? Is that the only thing going on in this moment? Really? Or is there other stuff inside of you that you might have to face it with some courage and ask God for some help? That something, something besides God has become extremely, extremely important to us. It don't matter who your husband, your wife is, your kids, or the amount of money you got, or what you get to do and don't get to do, and what your title is, you can find reason to grumble. 
Last thought on this. Idols have personalities. Idols make demands. Idols want and crave things. Idols are terrorists who make threats until they get what they want. Idols are loyal to no one and only act in their own ultimate interest. Idols are like cancer cells. If they are fed, they will turn on and destroy the whole body. That idol may make you feel comfortable or important or liked for a moment. It is going to consume you. It is not your friend. And the greatest thing you could do would be not to rise up and take up arms against everybody else around you, but to take up the arms and go within and find out what are the idols in me that need to meet the cross of Christ and die in that place. Eric, you can come back up here. All right, here's a reality for us, that last little thought here as we take a moment to pray. Paul told the Corinthians, here's the issue. The issue is flee idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Run for your lives every day. Because this is going to be an issue every day of your life. Flee from idolatry. As a matter of fact, it's the last thing that the Apostle John writes in his epistle. 1 John chapter 5, last verse, verse 21. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I love what David Paulson says in response to that. He says, in a 105 verse treaty on living in vital fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God. How on earth does that unexpected command merit being the final word? John's last line properly leaves us with that most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust and preoccupation and loyalty, service and fear and delight? Something displaced God as being the ultimate catch, the ultimate purpose, the reason I draw breath, the reason why my life is going to be anything tomorrow or next year or ever. Here's, I, want us, I want us to pray for a moment this morning. But I want to invite you to do something a whole lot more than, than what you might do with a what message. And the Bible's got what messages in it. What message you might just take responsibility for some action that you're taking and say, hey God, I'm confessing this and I'm agreeing with you and, I, and, and that needs to stop. And by your grace, it's going to stop. I'm repenting and turning from that. A why question is a little harder. It might take you some exploration to ask yourself, why do I do what I do? And maybe right now you're sitting here today and lights are going off and you're going, oh, unfortunately, today the Lord showed me why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's a wonderful thing. It's a painful thing, but it's a wonderful thing. I do pray God to help us in this. But I found it interesting as Tim Keller essentially in his book, Counterfeit Gods, is a book about idolatry. He was interviewed when the book was published a few years ago by Christianity Today. They asked him the question, so Tim, how do we get rid of idols? Keller's response, I confess that I don't say much about that. (laughs) 
I do say that analyzing and recognizing an idol is a step away from its power over you. That's good. You also have to have a heck of a prayer life. That prayer life can't just be petitioning, you know, and we show up to God, we've got our list, hey, God, do this, do that, do this, do this before it gets bad. There has to be, listen, there has to be encounter, experience, and genuine joy. You have to have Jesus Christ increasingly capture your affections. If that last two sentences is not taking place in your Christian life, then I would tell you right here today, you are powerless against idols. Because idols live in those words. They are encounters. They are experiences. They promise you joy. And they even provide it at a little bit of a level. And if you don't have that going on between you and God, can I just say the idols win undefeated for the rest of the season? So if you're here today and you're saying, boy, I I do think I have some idol issues. I I think this is a good starting place. Recognizing, how do you say it? You checking and seeing what's what's in my heart that, that shows up in my life this way. But if that idol is going to get displaced, it's going to be because you've encountered Christ. And you have an experience of him, from him, that outweighs every other promise, every other guarantee of safety or ambition, of hopes, and whatever it is. You've got something from Christ that outweighs all of it. But if you don't have that, it'll be a really, really hard day to face and face idols. Let's stand up together. Lord, this is such a living reality in our lives. That maybe living in the shadows... And it may not be something we understand very much. Maybe for some, though, this morning was clarifying. God, this morning, by your word and by your spirit, you took us deep within our own hearts. You let us see something about ourselves. Or perhaps there are some of us here this morning able to say, I see why. I see why I do what I do. Or how kind of you to show us. Or maybe there are some who are here this morning who are trying to see, but they're not seeing yet, Lord. They're just not. It's a lot of what, there's a lot of difficulty. But God, this is a step. This is a moment for you to take us deeper. I'm not quite sure what I want to encourage a couple of you to do. Some of you to do. I just want to ask you a question. Let's see what the Lord wants to do here. Are you aware 
that you have brought harm. Maybe even destruction or great hurt into the lives of others. Because you served your idol at their expense. You've said things, cruel things, hurtful things. Because there's an inner impulse of fear or control given way to anger in your life but it's your idol you are loyal to this idol you are bound to its voice you serve it you've blamed others listen I'm not here to tell you that there aren't people who haven't failed you or hurt you But you're going to have to create this category. You're going to have to have the courage to look at what the Bible says. What about you? What about your desires? Why did you do what you did? Idols cost other people. And before they do that, they cost the glory of God. God, I pray for every person who's here this morning who has sat through this message and has become aware. They haven't just been hurt, they've hurt others. They haven't just been through difficulty, they've created difficulties for others. God, I thank you that there is a gospel for us available that doesn't wait for us to get our lives together and be good enough to be embraced by you, to be pursued by you, to be loved by you. And so, Lord, I pray for every person who has been afraid of facing this reality about themselves. Lord, Would you open a grand view of who you are to them? Of your love for them that's like no other love, that they don't have to earn it. They don't have to have lived a good enough life. They can't bring those things up because that failed. Lord, we don't have to have a perfect record. Your love comes to us amidst all of our idolatry and loves us and finds us and heals us and leads us. So Lord, would you give us a dose of courage this morning for some, just a courage to face themselves because they have got something from you that looks like love and guaranteed hope, persistence. You are that way, God. You are persistent toward us. So God, for every heart here this morning who is tasting regret, feeling responsible Lord let let regret and responsibility have gospel fruit that's supposed to produce fruit we don't run from those things we don't try and pour cold water on them get them to go away 
God, if we've done things that we regret and you call us to be responsible, then we should be that. But Lord, we do not live controlled by these idols. We live for your glory. We live in your love and mercy and acceptance in our lives. I pray for every person here. I don't even want to have an altar call. I think there's too many of us this morning who are in touch with, we're doing things in our lives for our own reasons. We're demanding things from others for our own reasons. We have put God at a distance for our own reasons. And God, this morning, you're showing up in that category. Got to pray for a difference to be made. Lord, why do you share these truths with us? Why does the Apostle Paul be inspired by the Holy Spirit to share a 1,500-year-old story? So that it can radically change these people. That's why. Why did you write these things down, Lord? Why do we even know about this? You wrote them down for us. For our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. So Lord, would you use what you've written down in our lives? Lord, would you begin a liberation project? Would you set us free from these idols? Maybe idols that got started when we were little kids. We learned to be afraid of certain things. We became young adults and we learned to be ambitious about certain things. And they became too big in our lives. Lord, would you go to work on those things so that they're not writing the script for us. Lord, we're not driven from relationship to relationship and church to church and job to job. Looking in the rearview mirror of one blown up thing after another because idols have run us. Oh God, this morning, what good news you have for us. That there is a grace and a power by your Spirit. And we can live our lives. We look outside of ourselves today, Lord. We don't look inward. We look to you, our great hope. God of power, be at work in us to give us a life that's not based on idolatry. It's based on your grace, your grace, your power, your faithfulness, your promises to us today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.